You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. There's a lot of distance between us and the Christians of the first century. You probably don't need me to tell you that, so we'll just state the obvious. There's a lot of distance. They live in a different world. They struggle with different things. And we've seen that as we've been working through Galatians, right? The conflicts of the first century church are not exactly the same as the conflicts of the 21st century church. Uh, They've been arguing over whether or not non-Jewish disciples should be circumcised, right? So like modern Christians argue over the old color of the carpet thing. Ancient Christians argued over ritual surgeries. Kind of, kind of a different thing, and we can feel that distance. Like, it's another world. Like, we don't understand that. We don't get it. That's fine. Okay. That does not mean, however, that we have nothing in common with them. And Galatians chapter 3 is one of those places that draws our attention to a struggle that we share in common with believers, not only in the first century, but in many ways throughout the century, throughout all of the church's history. This chapter is about the relationship between the Old and New Testaments, the the law of Moses and the gospel of Jesus. And this comes up pretty regularly. Different Christians take somewhat different attitudes to to this, but all of us wrestle in some way or another with like how these go together. You know, we've got all these laws and all those commandments, and I really like shrimp and barbecue, and apparently those are off limits, and I'm not sure how to integrate that into my Christian life and the mission. And, and so you get kind of a spectrum of attitudes towards the Old Testament and how it relates to the New Testament. One of those is kind of a hands-off, I don't really get that, this law, that story, that guy, I can't pronounce any of the names, and I don't know what to do with it, so I'm just going to kind of not read it and ignore it. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but a lot of us are probably there. We get up, we get kind of, it's the beginning of the year, we're going to maybe do our Bible in a year reading plan, and we're reading, and the first few chapters are great, you got Adam and Eve and the serpent, and it's exciting, and we're kind of reading through it, and then you get on in, you know, a few chapters into Genesis, and there's that guy who kills a bunch of people, and all right, there's, there's a plot, it's moving along, and then, then the other guys do the thing to their brother where they throw him in a pit and lie to their dad about him being dead, and you're, you can, you're building some momentum, and you're reading along, and then you get to Exodus, and there's this, the, the plagues and the Red Sea, and it's all great until you get to the laws, and you begin to lose steam. Amen? Amen. And if you make it through the laws of, that are in Exodus, you got to deal with Leviticus. <laughs> and most people don't survive Leviticus. It's just, it's just reality. Occasionally, you'll persevere, but so that's one, like we, tr- like we want to, we don't get it, so we just sort of leave it to the side. And then there's another end of the spectrum, and this one is where people kind of come along and say, so I've read this, and like I think we all just need to do it. Like I've got folks that I've been in church with before who would insist that you're pretty much not a Christian if you don't follow the Mosaic law to the T, right? And so 
I think most of us intuit that that's probably not where we need to be. And most of us know we ought to be trying to understand the relationship between Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. But we struggle with it. And so you've got these two extremes, and a lot of us are somewhere in the middle, aren't we? Maybe some days we're, we're on one side of the spectrum, other days we're on the other. But we're in there somewhere, and we're kind of struggling and working through it. Galatians 3 is a big picture passage. It's one of these places where Paul says, we're going to talk about old, we're going to talk about new, we're going to talk about how they relate, we're going to talk about how the Old Testament is useful and how it can inform your Christian faith and how it can instruct us and how God wants it to work. And we're going to talk about how it relates to Jesus. And he doesn't get down into the nitty gritty. He doesn't start citing individual regulations or rituals. It's very big picture. I'm a big fan of big picture. A lot of us are. It kind of helps us get things organized. So when we come to Galatians 3, Paul wants to help the Galatians and us deal with these difficult things. And if we're going to kind of sum it up briefly, we might do it this way. Just kind of hold on to this and we'll, we'll work our way around some different angles. But Paul's point is this. The law reveals our need for Christ. The promise, this is where we're going, the promise offers us hope in Christ. So the law reveals something. It reveals our need. The promise, the gospel, reveals something else and offers us something else. It offers us hope in light of our need. So that, there's a lot to unpack there, so let's talk about it. So Galatians chapter 3, you got this context of conflict. And Paul's kind of set up a contrast, right? You got some folks in the Galatian community who are saying, hey, if you're not Jewish and you want to be a Christian, this is a Jewish movement, you need to get circumcised. And you can imagine, we've already noticed, that could be a real deterrent for the evangelism committee. Like, that's it's going to be hard there. So they're, so they're in this conflict, they're trying to figure it out. It, the, Galatia wasn't the only place where that happened. If you read through Acts, this is happening in Jerusalem. They're getting together. What do we require? How are we going to do this? What's going on? And Paul sort of says, all right, look, there's this, you've got, you've got the works of the law on the one hand. You've got the Old Testament. You've got Moses. You've got these kinds of things. And you've got Jesus over here. And one God is doing all the work, but they work in different ways. And now that Jesus has shown up, we're making a shift into kind of a different sphere, right? And, and, and this is how God relates to us. And he uses the big picture piece, and this is crucial. For Paul, if you, want to, if you want to understand what Jesus is up to, you need to spend some time with Father Abraham. Right? You got Abraham, you got Jesus. Those are Paul's like poles, guiding markers, like these are the landmarks. These are pay attention to these guys. And he says, God made a promise to Abraham. And the promise to Abraham is that I'm going to use your family to bless all the nations of the earth. And Paul says, that promise is a, light, is a lot like your last will and testament, right? You do the will thing, you get it notarized, it's done, you can't change it without a whole lot of really complicated procedures. Like, it's done, you don't mess with it. You die, you do it, they do what you say to do, right? The promise to Abraham, I'm going to use your family to bless all the families, 
Paul says, that's the key piece. That doesn't change. Nothing that happens anytime after that changes the fundamental promise to God, your family, your offspring, your descendants, some translations will say your seed, right? Your sons and your daughters will inherit the land and bless the nations. Like that's the fundamental thing. And Paul says that is answered with a big yes exclamation point when Jesus shows up. And this is where like Paul's apparently a grammar nerd. I don't know if any of you are grammar nerds, but Paul apparently was. Because he's reading, this is Genesis 17, he's reading first five, six, seven verses. He's talking about the promises to Abraham. It does not say, Paul says, this is verse 16, and to offsprings with an S. And you might be thinking, you're really getting kind of nitpicky here, Paul. Like, what in the world? Like, surely Abraham thought God meant all of his family. But Paul says, no, the promise is in the singular. The promise is in the singular. It means one particular offspring, one particular descendant. One. Read it again. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular. It does not say to offsprings, plural, as of many, but it says, and to your offspring, that is to one person. And so the question is kind of like, well, who's the one person? And Paul says, Captain Obvious, it's Jesus. Everything promised to Abraham is yes, 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 yes in Jesus. And the family then gets defined by relation to Jesus. That's how this thing works. Abraham, Jesus. If you want to understand Abraham, Jesus, you got to go back to Abraham. And so Jesus shows up, and he's the instrument. He's the one who brings blessing to all the families of the earth. And that's us. Like, because Jesus showed up, we're incorporated into God's promise to Abraham. Like, we're the Gentiles, the non-Jewish followers of Jesus. And so we're grateful for this kind of thing. We're grateful that Jesus came and he is God's yes. He's the one who expands this thing and, and brings us in and brings us into this experience of his stunningly deep, perfect, unfailing love. Despite our transgression and despite our failures and despite our rebellion, he comes and says, come to me. Weary one. Come to me with your burdens, your brokenness, your sin will not keep us separate. Trust me. Come to me. So Paul says that's the big picture. Abraham, Jesus. I'm going to use your family, bless all the families. I'm going to use your offspring. To bless everybody. Jesus is the offspring. He's the one. That's why we sing. Jesus. Only Jesus. He's the one. Everything's at Him. Talking about these revival, outpouring, awakening that's happening in Wilmore and other places. One of the things that is most beautiful is that the thing that seems to be just running current 
is that people just can't get enough of Jesus. And here's one of the things that struck me. Is, uh, you know, I've read a bunch of the accounts. You probably have too. Um, one of the students sort of was remarking, like typically in church, we think of coming to get served. I'm going to go get fed. I'm going to go get filled. I'm going to go get served at church. And if this church isn't serving me what I think they should, I'll find one that does. Think about these kids in Kentucky. They're not coming to be served. They're coming to serve Jesus. They're not coming to get something from him, one student said. We're coming to minister to him. We're not coming to get ministry from him. This was the quote, we are coming to minister to to Jesus. And that took me, like, that kind of turned my Christianity upside down when I read that from a 20-year-old in Kentucky that I've never met. Like, do I show up here to minister to Jesus? Like, who even talks like that? I'm getting a quizzical look over here. Who even talks like that? When was the last time said, hey, let's go minister to Jesus? No, typically we're saying, I need Jesus to minister to me. I'm hurting. I need Jesus to minister to me. I feel guilt over my sin. I need him to minister to me. I've got this thing in my life, and it's like my colleague, and there's this brokenness, or my family, and there's this thing. I need Jesus to come do something. I need Jesus to come do something. I need Jesus. And we do. We need that. We need him to show up and work and minister to us. And he wants to, and he does. Thanks be to God. But I was struck. Because if you read your Bible, the worship of the people of God is a ministry to God. Like That's what they're doing. <laughs> they're ministering to God. Offering Him worth and worship and love and their whole selves and their best. Whether it's the perfect lamb in Jerusalem 2,500 years ago? Or a heart with nothing held back today? Do you come here to minister to Jesus? Only Jesus. Because until we flip into that mode, our Christianity will not be what it's supposed to be. struck me this week and then I sit down and I'm working on a sermon and <laughs> it's aimed at this shedding everything but single focus on him single focus on him Abraham straight line Jesus so the obvious question for us for Paul for the Galatians so why the law that's the rhetorical question in verse 19. If it's all about just offering yourself to Jesus, ministering to Jesus, giving yourself to Him, nothing held back, why this whole rigmarole with shellfish and barbecue? And don't wear clothes made out of 50-50 polycotton blend. Like, that kind of stuff is in there. I know you guys didn't make it all the way through Leviticus, most of you. One person did, I think. But it's in there, trust me. 
what's that about? Like, why, why these things, they seem weird and foreign? And Paul says, here's the thing. This is kind of cryptic, but we're going to unpack it. Why then the law? Paul says, here's why the law was added. First of all, the law doesn't replace the promise. You got a straight line from Abraham to Jesus. The law doesn't sort of like take us off on a different path. It's more like a parenthesis. It's got a job. It starts and it finishes. Okay? So what's the job? He says, here's, here's the thing. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Okay. The law was added. Moses, like don't worship idols, don't covet, all the stuff added because of transgressions. You're going to have to help us out a little bit, Paul. That's cryptic. Flesh it out. And here's what he's getting at. The law was added, he says, to teach us things. He uses this language of a disciplinary, and we're going to flesh that out a little bit more in just a second. Here's the thing. How does it function? What does it do? The law teaches me things, and it protects things, and it guards things. But what? You read through the Old Testament, a lot of the laws protect vulnerable people. Some of the stuff that seems really weird to us was actually offering really significant protections to people that society would basically chunk in the sewer. And they had no recourse whatsoever. We read through a lot of the stuff and we think, man, that's really weird, and it's actually protecting people who are vulnerable. So one of the functions of the law is added because of the transgression. Like, they're sinners out there, and they're dangerous people, and they have to be restrained. And so, you know, you've got vulnerabilities. Someone might take your stuff. So the law comes along and says, don't covet other people's things. Don't take things from your neighbor. It's restraining sin and protecting the vulnerable in that. Right? And if it weren't there, <laughs> all you know what would break loose? Because there would be no restraint. People would be taking whatever they want. You get into kind of a might-makes-right, power-hungry battle for whatever. Whatever suits me. And so the law is right there. Even at the very beginning, you got the Ten Commandments and then another five or six hundred after that. 572, something like that. Right? They're holding back abusive practices and restraining us when we want to take advantage of other people. Don't do that to that person. Right? There's, a, there's a bit in Leviticus called the holiness code, and one of the things in there is pay your workers on payday. <laughs> That's my translation. It says don't withhold wages from your hired, hired hands, basically, right? Because you could imagine a situation where like a farmer's like, yeah, you know, these guys are working for me, but I'd like to get a little bit more out of them. And so, you know, hey, come on down tomorrow. I'll pay you the next day. Is that fair? No. Is it just? No. So God says, here's how I want you to treat people who you could abuse. Treat them fairly. And justly. So that law restrains something in a, an employer's sinful heart that might try to like squeeze a little bit more out of the payroll kind of thing. It's restraining sin. And without it, 
You never know what might happen. So that's one of the things it does. It was added because of transgression, kind of restrains that sinful thing. It was also added to teach us our need. Because when I'm going along, uninstructed by God's Word, with a seared conscience, I may not realize that I'm doing something that dishonors God and even takes advantage of a neighbor. Like you've met people and you've thought, what are they? They don't seem to think that's wrong. The law comes along and says, hey, when you desire, and let's stick with the coveting thing, when you desire something that belongs to your neighbor, this is actually the, the way Paul fleshes it out in Romans 7. I didn't know I had a covetous heart until God said, don't covet. I just thought it was the American dream. Aren't you supposed to want what everybody else has? <laughs> and the law says, no, you're not. Don't covet. Don't desire what belongs to someone else. There's a respect there. There's a dignity that's extended. And I didn't know that was a problem in me until Moses shows up and says, hey, dude, there's a problem in there. So the law restrains sin and reveals sin. It names it. It's kind of like a, you know, we find it helpful to name things. Like, let's call it what it is. That's where confession comes in. We're going to name this rebellion. We're going to name this transgression. And we don't have the language to name the stuff until the law comes in and says, here's what it is. That's idolatry. That's murder. That's theft. That's deceit. And the law gives us categories. It gives us diagnostics to help with that sort of thing. And so it instructs us, it teaches us, it helps us in that way. It gives us a standard to measure everything, including us, against. So Paul says it's here to teach us in that way. Let's talk about this disciplinarian language. Verse 25 We'll start with verse 22. Scripture has imprisoned all things under the power of sin so that what was promised through faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. That's that idea that it's identifying the things that keep us in bondage. Verse 25. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore the law was our disciplinarian. Now when we hear that word disciplinarian, we tend to think probably something negative. That sounds pretty negative, doesn't it? I don't want a disciplinarian, do you? Disciplinarian's my dad when he's mad with a belt or something, right? My dad wasn't mad with belts, but you get the idea, right? Like there's that, we have that anger thing, you know? There's like, go into the woodshed. That's what a disciplinarian does. So what's going on here? We don't do the Greek words a lot, but I'm going to hit you with this one. Pythagogos. You want to say it with me? Anybody? Anybody want to grab a microphone and come up here and try to say it? Eh? Eh? It's not quite as hard as some of the ones in the Old Testament, but there it is, pedagogos, two words. One of them is child, pidos, and the other one is ago, which means to kind of lead along or to go along. And the idea is your pedagogos is the trustee of a wealthy Roman child. Like, so if you're a wealthy Roman citizen, you're going to have a slave in your house or you're going to hire someone, and they're going to come along, and they're going to be responsible for enculturating your children. They're going to teach them when to go down to the temple to Zeus, when to go down to the temple to Artemis or whoever, right? 
how to tie their sandals, which hand to hold the scroll in, which shoulder to put the toga over, all the stuff you need to actually function in Roman culture, the Pythagogos gave it to you. Now that sounds pretty helpful, doesn't it? It's what we do with our own kids. Here's how you tie your shoes. Get your books for school. Put them in your backpack. You know, like all the stuff, like how to tie a tie or button a shirt or how to shake a hand, right? Enculturation. All the stuff to do. All the stuff that we expect. So what's going on here, right? So, so Paul says the law is like that. The law teaches us. It instructs us. It's not a bad thing. It's not a negative thing. It's like, it's like parents teaching their kids how to use a fork so you can feed your face. It's instructive. It's like a babysitter who's going to care for you. It's like, a, it's like a teacher who's going to instruct you. It's all that stuff rolled into one so that you can become a contributing member of society. Right? So when you hear that disciplinarian language, that's not a negative thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. That's why Paul says the law is not opposed to the promise. It prepares us for the promise. It teaches us that we're sinners. It teaches us that God takes sin very seriously. And it teaches us that no one, no one in the world comes in neutral. Everybody comes along with this, Charles Wesley called it, a bent to sin. Like there's a thing in my heart from the start. My parents don't have to teach me to throw things at my brothers and sisters, do they? I do that naturally. <laughs> and every parent said, that's right. Right? Well, there's this, this, this inward curvature of the heart. Me, me, me. I'll have my way. I don't care if it's yours. I will take it. I will do what I want. And the Bible calls that transgression. And so God gives this law. Because nobody knew it was a thing until God named it. And no one knew how to restrain it until God taught us how to begin restraining. The law reveals that need. It protects and reveals a need so that when Jesus comes, he can say, I know your need, and now you do too. I know the darkness in your heart that you don't tell anybody else about. I know what it feels like to be hurt offended, abused. I know what it's like to be you. And the transgression in your life won't stop me from giving my life for you. Here's hope. Because the law says, sinner. And Jesus says, brothers and sisters. So the law is not there for us to sort of meticulously manage our diets. And if we take it that way, it's really a distraction. That's why Paul says, that, like, when we get, when faith comes, we're no longer under the disciplinarian, right? When Jesus shows up, right, your kids at some point grow up and move out, don't they? 
That's the analogy here. If they're under the disciplinarian, the pedagogos, they're learning. They're being taught. Like, don't hit your sister. That's part of the thing, right? That's, that's the deal. But eventually, <laughs> you got to trust that they learned. And they have to go and grow up. And that's the image Paul is giving us here. Like, moving from Moses to Jesus is a maturity thing. So we don't want to go backwards. And so for Paul, he's saying, like, if you require everybody to be circumcised, to be a Christian, it's like they're regressing in their growth, not progressing and maturing. Going back to childhood ways instead of growing up into Jesus, who gives us hope. Only Jesus. The law, he says, can't make you alive. It can only tell you you're condemned. The law can't give you righteousness. It can't forgive you. It can only tell you how bad you are. But you need to know that. Because as our estimation of our own fallenness grows, the beauty of Jesus' grace also grows. The more I discover about how... <laughs> dark my heart is, the more beautiful he becomes in my eyes. Because he already knew. And it didn't stop him from stretching his arms and allowing his body to be pierced and his blood to be shed <laughs> so that I could become his brother and be welcomed into his family. There's hope in that. And in this season where we're kind of going through some transitions, I want us to remember that hope is in our name. We're going to get a new sign. The first word on the sign will be hope. Let's be the people of hope. Let's be the people who find the broken and the condemned and the hurt, and we say, come on, Jesus, only Jesus. He's where you find hope. He's where you find forgiveness. He's where you find restoration. He is where you find perfect love. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. We have an opportunity to be an outpost of the kingdom of God for that mission. And as we do, we will live into that promise. Hey, Abraham, I'm going to use your family to bless the nations. I long for us to be that kind of church, to grow into that vision, to step into that vocation. How does it happen? Eyes on Jesus. Only Jesus. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.